Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Hahn again, and today is May 31st, it's Memorial Day of 2021, and once again I'm coming to you from my library in Waltham, and the reason I'm coming to you on a Monday as opposed to on a Friday is that I've been in a writing retreat, and um, just as a little excitement, uh, um, our book is due at the publishers on Tuesday, June 1st, and we will actually get a first draft there, um, which is very exciting because uh, <laughs> I've been writing this book off and on for longer than I want to admit, but um, we actually wrote an incredible amount in two weeks, Joni and I did, so uh, we're about done. Um, and we just have to sort of do a read through of the whole book, which turned out to be a lot longer than we anticipated. So we hope you all like it. Um, it should come out next year. And uh, please read it and tell us anything you think about it. But that's for the future. Today, we're going to talk about in this episode, which is episode, as we said, episode 14 um, of Guided Self Healing Fearless Living. Today, we're going to talk about head points. Head points are the points that say, I think, therefore I am, or, uh, and are able to process through their heads. And of course, we talked about this already. So just to review, the problem for head points is that the world is a dangerous place. Why is the world a dangerous place? Because there's a fear for all head points. And the fear is I am no body. So it's like I am a head cut off from my body and therefore I don't have enough energy and therefore the world can do something to me. It can demand too much and give too little. It can harm me. It can trap me. It can do something. So I'm always in a place of trying to get away from something, even if I'm not aware of it. So that's what happens if I'm a head point. So if you want to start with this, just for a moment, be with the question of what it would be like if you are always trying to, to focus on, on some level, even if it was unconsciously, how are you gonna do something, world or a person, that is going to be making me feel insecure and that there is some kind of danger? And today we're gonna to talk about these three variations of the head points. And we're also gonna talk about the soul wounds of these three variations and how we can transform them because then we get to be free. Why are we doing this? Well, the first reason we're doing it is we want to be able to understand ourselves and other people from the inside out. What's truly motivating us so we can know and uh, what we call cultivate the inner witness so that instead of just compulsively living in the world, we can do it with some sense of awareness and freedom. And of course, if you're in relationship with a head point, whatever head point that is, uh, instead of projecting all over them, you would say, excuse me, okay, I know what's making this person tick. So I won't take their actions personally. It's really their way of being in the world. And I will try to be in relationship with them in a way that will make them feel secure, which would be a lovely thing to do. And if I don't think take things personally, I will be able to be with them their perspective. So that's one reason we do this is that we understand ourselves and others from the inside out and then we're more able to be with people in a way that is true 
and in a way that they would want to be treated as opposed to the way that we would think that they would want to be treated, which often has nothing to do with the way they want to be treated. So that's the first point here. The second point is that, as we said last time, every personality is really a compulsion that is based on trying to do the opposite of experiencing a fear we have about ourselves. So you could say our personality is a protector that obscures ourselves from knowing who we truly are, because who we truly are, we have misnamed as something that we would rather be dead than have to experience. And so we spend all of our lives pulling away from this black hole that's pulling us to it. And of course, it's pulling us to it because as we know with gravitation, what is gravitation? It's love. But we, of course, think that it's hate and we try to get away. So it's really ironic. And we're going to talk about that later. So with that as introduction, head points. And as we said, head points are called, the emotion is called fear and the mental concern is called doubt. So let's look at each of these from the point of view of fear and doubt. And we said all head points pull away. We talked about the energetics and no matter what head point you are, we know your first move from the center is going to be to pull back and in, that you're going to get away from something. And then we said there are three variations. So given that we have started by going back and in, do we then go further back and in? Or do we go what we called up and diffuse, which means you're really more dissociative and like, uh, uh, or are we, do we go forward and out and doing sort of an end run around what it is we're afraid of while we are pretending uh, that we're not afraid and we've got them to buy the Kool-Aid, so to speak. So that's our three variations. So let's look at them one at a time and we're gonna look at what something about that point, which is gonna be points five, six, and seven in the Enneagram. We're gonna look at what their worldview is and then what the fear is underneath it and then how to heal that fear. So with that, point five is called the observer. And the observer observes, right? So the observer pulls away from something because it's a fear point, and then it pulls further back and in, sort of like in a point sort of at the back of the head, where it can just observe everything. And so great scientists are observers, and great analysts are observers, and, you know, great thinkers are observers, and you know, all those things are observers because what an observer does is gets information. It's like, you know, knowledge is king. And like, the more I know, the better I'm off because then I've got enough information and then I can become an expert on something, which of course makes me feel secure. So an observer is somebody who would like be a scientist who said, I've studied a mitochondria, if you remember the movie Awakenings, you know, for nine years and I'm a world expert in it and I know everything about it, you know. Um, and totally logical, um, no feeling. Um, so it's like I, I split off my head and I just witness everything. Sort of from my point of view, like Mr. Spock on you know, Star Trek on that level, he really has that in his personality to be an observer. If you are that old and you know Mr. Spock. Um, or the movie Awakenings, if you ever saw that movie, classic example of an observer. Um, you know, Oliver Sacks in that movie is totally an observer. If you ever want to see a great movie that really gives you a sense of what it's like to be an observer and someone who says, you know, I will, I mean, 
I'm not sure that how he was portrayed in that movie, actually having read about him some is how he is, but someone who says like, I will learn everything and I will gain more and more knowledge, but it's very difficult for me to reach out and just say, you know, I really like you and I would like to go out and have coffee with you, right? Because that's, that's dangerous, you know, you're putting yourself out there as little enough of you as there is anyway, right? So what's the gift? The gift is, and what you'll find is the gift and the challenge are always the same thing. The gift is someone who says, I can just witness everything. And when everybody else around me is like getting pulled by emotions or reactivity or whatever, I can just sit there and I can witness. And you think you're looking at me, but I'm looking at you looking at me, whatever the you is that I'm looking at. So you think you're looking at me, but you're not because I'm hidden behind a castle, right? So, and the great gift of this, of course, is that uh, you aren't pulled. Uh, you get to see everything and you're all knowing. It's a great thing. And the gift, the gift is the challenge, which is, you know, I'm a rock and I'm an island. A rock feels no pain and island never cries. That's sort of like, you know, the, what we might call the more challenged part of a, an observer. So let's think about this for a second. What would make somebody do this and what would be their core motivation? And of course, the core motivation of an observer is to be self-sufficient and to build a wall around themselves. So the, the sin is called avarice. And avarice means you, you know, it's like the Midas touch. It's like you, you gain gold, but it turns everybody into stone, right? So avariciousness is really about gathering something around you. And a lot of observers can make a lot of money, some of them don't. But if they do, it's not because they want to succeed and be recognized for it. It's because they want to be able to build a wall of money around themselves because they want their privacy. And they will, you know, observers of people will say, I'm going to not pick up the phone now monitor the calls, but I'm not going to pick up because I don't want anyone impinging on me, right? So or I'll hide behind a book or whatever it is I'm going to do, or I will hide behind time and, you know, hoard it, right? So really what's going on here is a sense of insufficiency. The core fear in my experience of observers is a sense of insufficiency. Now it starts off as an insufficiency of energy. I don't have enough energy. And so when the world asks me something, it's not just the world is asking something, it's making a demand. It demands too much and it's not gonna give me what I need. It's not gonna feed me. So I have very little energy. Now, of course, all of that is a projection because we start off with a sense of insufficiency, but then we tell ourselves a story about it like everybody else, right? So what do I compulsively need to do is to be self-sufficient. And you will find that fives, except for the fact that they buy a lot of books, really strip away needs, right? You know, so an enormous library with books all over the place, but, you know, I don't need anything. and I can live by myself and I can live self-contained because, you know, if I let somebody too far in, they're going to ask something of me or they're going to expect something of me. And so I'm going to have to be self-sufficient. Why would someone compulsively have to be self-sufficient? Because they feel insufficient. And it's, as I say, it starts off energetically, but since it's a head point, it goes to mind also. It goes to the head, it goes to intelligence. So um, a, 
an observer is also going to think, I don't have enough information. I have to gather more and more and more information. And of course, gathering information means you never have to take action. And if you're you know, a good observer, you never take action. Uh, that's not quite true, but it's close to true. I mean, you know, observers have a lot of difficulty until they know everything. They'll gather more and more information and they won't make, you know, they won't be engaged in that way. All right. So if I'm an observer, what do I do? And if I'm, I'm being with an observer, right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them space and not take personally the fact that they're not reaching out to me because it has nothing to do with me, even if I'm a heart point and I'm feeling like bereft and that's my problem. It's not their problem. So, you know, if a good observer says, you know, I love you once a year, that's doing a lot, you know, because that's giving me a lot. You just have to know that if someone has very little to give when they give you something, it's like, you know, a real gift. So, but we were talking about this because I go all over the place sometimes. Um, the sense of insufficiency is also of mind. So it means that you think you're crazy or you think you'll never know enough or whatever. That's the fear. So you have to learn more and more and more and know everything, right? And you have to have no needs and be self-sufficient. So the work then is to really let yourself experience this sense of lack, this energetic and mental sense of lack, the sense of I am insufficient. I have insufficient energy because I'm like a head that's cut off from the body. And I have ins insufficient information because nothing will ever be enough so that I'll know everything. And so I do a practice and I let myself fully, fully experience this fear I have about myself that who I am is fundamentally insufficient. And you feel what that feels like in the body and it will feel like something, whether it's an emptiness or a sick feeling, whatever it is. And then of course you choose to bring all your awareness to that sensation until you become sensation, whatever it is, sick to stomach or emptiness from the inside out. And then you sit with it and you say, you know, teach me, what have you come to share about this insufficiency and what it's like? And then of course worlds open up for us. So that's the observer. Then we go to point six, again, a head point, so pulling away. But point six, which is called, in my tradition, it's called the loyal skeptic, which is a wonderful term. I'm loyal and I'm skeptical. You know. um, so it's someone who says, yes, but, right? And really, you know, think of, most people think of loyal skeptics as somebody who sees all the negative things. In fact, loyal skeptics are just contrarians. They have to see every perspective. And since most people in our country, which is a country that's based in being a performer and being optimistic in some way, are sort of saying, oh, look at the possibilities here. You know, we could like do this, 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 and this, you know, and you know, we could have this outdoor situation. And they say, yeah, well, what happens if it rains? At which point most people, instead of realizing that you're, you're being given a favor, they say, oh my God, you're raining on my parade. I have all these good ideas and you're replaced being so negative. In fact, really, if you're looking at it from the point of view of the loyal skeptic, what they're doing is they're trying to create security for themselves and for the people that they care about. So of course, they're going to look at all the bad things that can happen. And it's very important to have somebody who can look at the contrarian or the bad point of view most contrarian point of views is going to be bad in our culture, right? 
So a very philosophical point of view. I mean, some great philosophers, Freud, I'm sure, or Krishnamurti, or you know, a lot of great philosophers are people who are loyal skeptics. And you know, Richard Nixon certainly was a loyal skeptic, if you know the politics of that. In fact, we've had several presidents recently who are loyal skeptics. The you know, first George Bush, for sure. Um, probably his son also. Um, uh, unlike Barack, who I believe was a five and sort of was we have to talk about something more elegant than just the one point then. But be that as it may, um, what we're looking at here again is uh, someone who says, yes, but that's, that's true, but what about this? And I'm gonna see all of the things that are gonna make us feel insecure. And what I'm going to elevate about everything else is security. Why is, why do I need to feel secure, right? And why do I have to make the world around me secure? And why am I always seeing what's going on underneath the surface, which can either make me a paranoid delusional person or to make me an extraordinary psychic, right? It just depends on how free we are. Because it's all a question of, can we use the gift in the service of life or we use the gift in the service of uh, ego safety, right? And it's because, from my point of view, the core fear of somebody who has this is, I am a nobody. And I can therefore be humiliated. It's sort of, you know, and it's shameful to be a nobody. You know, it's sort of like uh, the 90-pound weakling on the beach who has sand kicked in their face and they can't stop it because this guy's a bully. Can't stop it. And even if you're um, what's called counterphobic, because, of course, when you're afraid, you can do several things, right? You can do fight, flight, or freeze, or you can become obsequious, um, which is what obsequious means like, you know, just a kind of pleasing, but a sort of deferential pleasing, um, which is what a lot of what are called loyal skeptics who are self-preserving do, they become very warm. But their warmth, just so we can notice this, is not the warmth because I want approval. It's the warmth because I want to diffuse you. If I'm warm enough to you, it will keep you away from me. And what happens, of course, in a lot of schools is you get these kids who are what are called self-preserving loyal skeptics and they're very warm so the teachers who are often givers or mediators which we'll get to will say oh they want more attention or they want me to merge with them or they want me to give them more so they come closer you know trying to take care of their needs or get an identity at which point the poor little girl or boy freezes and becomes profoundly anxious and people say why are they doing that it's because you know i've gotten in close i give them all this attention and sort of like that's they're doing it because you've gotten in too close and you're giving them too much attention it's like you know i'm being warm to you in order for me to have space in order for you to say you he's nobody to worry about or she's nobody to worry about i'll give them space so it's a really good thing to know and you can even feel the fear in that warmth um whereas if you are other subtypes you know if you're one-on-one -on -one and you really want to connect it's called something, you know, it's called, uh, I'm forgetting, I'm having a brain freeze here, which is, I don't usually do it on the Enneagram. Um, so the social ones are called duty and obligation. Those are the ones that sort of like are part of the world. And, uh, oh, strength and beauty, of course, strength and beauty. So strength and beauty sixes are very beautiful people and they're very, you know, 
beautiful and if they're social and sexual they're very charming but it's sort of also the strength and beauty that keeps people at a distance it's sort of like there's a ice quality about the strength and beauty until you know you melt a little bit okay so i need to be somebody i need to feel secure this is what i do in life it's like i have to create this kind of security well, there's a fundamental insecurity and the fundamental insecurity here that we're afraid to admit is that I am a nobody and whether I am phobic and I pull away from things and I'm sort of warm in a deferential way or I freeze, you know, and I get like frozen like a deer in headlights or I go after the thing that I'm afraid of, you know, it's all the same thing. There's still a sense of I'm a nobody. And uh, I going to prove that I'm a somebody or I'm going to like make myself invisible or I'm going to cower but whatever it is I feel like I'm a nobody now of course if I could sit with I'm a nobody and the humiliation that they can do whatever they want to me and my sense of shame about it then they couldn't do anything to me because I would have to have the courage right to say that that has nothing to do with what's outside of me I came in predisposed to experiencing I'm a nobody. And so instead of feeling it myself, what I do is I project my fear out onto the world and I get very anxious about what they're going to do. But as long as I can keep my anxiety about what's external, I never have to feel the internal fear. And true courage, which is what, you know, courage and faith, which is what uh, loyal skeptics teaches about, is to be able to sit with the fact that the fear is coming from within it's inside of us. If I could sit with my fear that I'm a nobody, what could anyone do to me? Because I had nothing to prove and I wouldn't have to like keep myself secure, you know. And then it'd be less likely, amazingly, that they would kick sand in my face because I wouldn't be such a target as a victim. So if you're with a loyal skeptic, of course, you have to feel what would it be like if I spent all my time sort of like saying, what's your hidden motive? What do you really, you know, you, you look like you're being friendly, but you really want to sell me 15 used cars, you know, and I'm going to find your hidden motive, you know, it's sort of like I'm going to find what's underneath, like Columbo. I'll keep asking questions until I find out what the truth is here, you know, because then I can feel secure. So, of course, what we're going to do is we're going to feel I'm a nobody. We're going to feel that in the body. And then if I can face it and become it while I'm there holding it as a witness, you know, observing it, so we build up the inner observer to I'm a nobody, then no one could hurt me because they could try to treat me like I'm a nobody, but I'd say, well, I already know that. So like, let's have a good time together or whatever. Okay, so that is our loyal skeptics. And now we're going to go to point seven, which are called various things. It's called, you know, the epicure, which means that I want to have the best of all experiences, or the adventurer, which means that every, you know, life is an adventure, and every adventure, you know, it's like, what's the best one, or an optimist, which means, you know, if I'm a loyal skeptic, I say, well, what's the bad thing that's going to happen if I'm a, if I'm a, seven i'm going to say well what's the pleasant good thing that's going to happen i'm always looking for the pleasant good thing all right so i'm somebody who's very synthetic thinker i can see all of what's going on i'm a brainstormer i love 
the creative act. I love saying, oh my God, life is an adventure. It's a mental adventure. It's a physical adventure. It's an adventure around everything. Like, you know, it's kind of like saying, you know, it's the kid, you know, the two kids and, you know, one's a six and one's a seven probably. One's given a great horse and they're looking for what's wrong with the horse. The other one's given like a pile, an enormous pile of horse manure and is digging away, smiling and, you know, saying, what's going on there? And they say, well, is this much manure? There has to be a horse here someplace. That's seven, right? Um, or seven also is, you know, Huck Finn and uh, Tom Sawyer who like don't want to be trapped, right? Painting the fence. Oh my God, that's, that's work. So I have this really, really, really like a wonderful idea that is sort of like uh, pulling the wool over his eyes. And I'll say, oh my God, my friends, we have the best game. It's called painting the fence and we'll only charge you 25 cents to paint the fence. And of course they'll paint the fence. They're all happy. And they think they're getting a good deal. And we go off fishing while we pocketed all the money. You know, that's the classic fixated seven story, right? Life is just an adventure like that. And it's all even. So we don't want anyone to have power over us because then they can trap us and we do not want to be trapped. So how is this a fear point? And the way it's a fear point is what happens when someone is imposing on you? They want you to feel bored or they want you to feel pain or they want you to feel whatever it is that they want you to feel that you don't want to feel, you know, dependent on any of these things, but particularly order pain. Terrible. So, I have to stay away from painful things. And if someone comes to me and they're in pain, they say, listen to me. You want to say, well, why would we do that? Who wants to feel that much pain in an ongoing way? Let's brainstorm our way out of it, which of course, if you're with certain people, they're your children, just doesn't work. If they want you to just sit with them while they're feeling the pain and the seven parents, that's crazy, but you know, it's because they're afraid of their own pain. So what's the fear, right? That would say, I'm afraid that I will be bored. Well, of course you could say my fear is I'm boring, which I think actually a lot of sevens actually do feel they're boring, but of course they're gonna like pull the wool over their eyes and everybody else's and I'll say, no, I'm exciting. But really I'd say, well, I really don't have that much skin treated because I'm just like this little kid, right? Or you could say, well, their fear is feeling pain, but why would someone fear feeling pain? And really, I think what you get to is this fear is the sense of being unfulfillable. And if you're a glass that's half full, so to speak, there's still a half of a glass left. That's why I say it's still a point that's a head point, you know, because they're still saying there's not enough, right? And I'm not enough. And because I'm not enough, that means my experiences are gonna fill me out, which means I have to wait around and never make a commitment and wait for the very best experience, even if it means I'm gonna like, you know, leave you high and dry because, you know, you have to go for what's best. Right? And if people get left high and dry, they get left high and dry, but one more learning experience. But if I could sit with my inner sense, this fear I have about myself that I'm unfulfillable, and so I have to be filled up with something good and I have to keep being filled up with something good because it's like it never fills. If I could sit with my sense of unfulfillability and feel that in the body, then I wouldn't be so afraid of pain or boredom or somebody making demands or whatever it is they're gonna do because I've sat with my unfulfillability, so I'm free. And I'm free to sit with my child if they're in pain and say, daddy, just listen to me. 
and you won't have to fix their problem. I say, I'll be with you in what you're feeling. I'll be with you when you're authentic feeling, and then you're free. So this was our quick journey around the head points, both in terms of you know, the three variations of the head points and the core fears that underlie that are called soul wounds that we can heal. They come from no stories. They're just the core lenses through which we experience all of life. And if we can begin to be with those core lenses and sort of take off the glasses, so to speak, and see the lens we're looking through the world at, then we might see a clearer world, not just shadow dancing. So with that, my dear friends, I wish you the best. And again, uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go to our website, which is lifecenteredtherapy.com. And you can also reach out to me anytime you like at A-H-A-H-N, that's Ahan, at lifecenteredtherapy.com. So until we meet again, at which point we will probably go to the belly points. Uh, but who knows what tomorrow brings, because if you guys say something or ask something or whatever, I also follow where you take us life sometimes invites you into things you're not aware of until you go on the journey. So having said that, I wish you all well and goodbye.